Scripture today comes from Romans 4, 1 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Hear the word of the Lord. So like I said, I am... Pastor Eric, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, please um, take a chance and introduce yourselves. I've been on vacation the last two weeks, and it is good to be back among you, even though I've been back for most of this week. I was commenting to several of you that it doesn't really feel like you're back until you have Sunday morning and have this opportunity to come together. Um, I'm also going to take pride of privilege here before we start looking at this text to, to mention. So we have, I'll be leading a new members class. I know a few of you have asked, you do not have to be planning on becoming a new member to come. But it's also just a chance to talk through the ideas of church membership and Kish a little bit. But it is only going to run for three weeks, so it should be a relatively low bar of entry. And if you would like to join us after service, please feel free to. Um, With that said, let's look at this text. We've been preaching through Romans since the beginning of the year with various breaks, and we will continue to preach through it for a while. But we're starting into chapter 4. So I grew up in rural Nebraska, which in many ways is similar to here, but maybe even a little more than than here, um, has that kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, frontier, kind of rural, middle America mentality. And I grew up in this family, um, my... My dad's parents, especially, they were, they were farmers. So not only did I grow up in kind of that rural setting, but lots of people on that side of the family were farmers. And um, that side of the family were also these like German immigrants' kids, my grandparents were. And so, you know, they grew up speaking German, coming over, their parents had come over. And so I grew up in this Midwestern, rural, agricultural Um, German immigrant world, and I feel like every single one of those cultural influences in my upbringing gave me a problem with generosity, particularly a problem with receiving generosity. So there's this kind of code that I learned growing up in those different cultures. Um, Like you would always help people out whenever they had a problem. 
but you would never let anybody know if you had a problem and never let them help you. You would give whatever you could when people were in need, but there was no way you were going to let anybody give you anything, right, even if you were in need. If someone did something for you, you were darn sure going to pay them. You know, there was no way that you weren't going to pay them if they did something to help you out. You were never going to take money, though, if you helped them out. Like, no, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to take any money. Does that sound familiar to any of you? I see a few of you guys chuckling. Well, maybe I was especially culturally conditioned in that way. I feel like a lot of us, on some level, have a problem with generosity. We don't want to feel like we're in someone's debt. We don't want to feel beholden to people. And so we struggle to take gifts, to take help from others. And that's problematic just on a human level. I mean, really, it is. I feel like sometimes... We feel like that's a virtue, but, but it is a problem, even with people. And I've spent a lot of my life since those years growing up trying to learn how to accept a compliment or help or a gift from somebody and not, and not feel really miserable about it. But that's even more of a problem when we think about Christianity. Paul's been spending the book of Romans so far arguing that none of us deserve anything from God, that we're all sinners, and that we're all justified by God's grace. But man, if I struggle with human generosity, then boy howdy, is that idea going to be hard for me? The idea that Christianity is not something that we earn, not something we pay for, but that it's gifted. It is what Paul says in our text for today, now to the one who works wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, and again, that's Paul saying that's all of us. Their faith is credited as righteousness. That if you work, Paul says, then yeah, you get wages from God, but none of us are working and getting wages. What all of us are doing are depending on God's generosity. And Paul knows that that's hard for us to accept. We want to deserve what God gives us. And so now in chapter 4, he kind of just spends some time digging down into that truth. And he does it by looking at a couple of Old Testament saints. Paul looks at Abraham, Abraham who God in Isaiah 41 describes as his personal friend, Abraham, the the father of all Israel, and Paul looks at um, Abraham and he argues that even for Abraham, it's all gifted, it's all God's generosity. And he does it with David too, with King David, the guy 1 Samuel 13 calls a man after God's own heart. He argues that David also doesn't deserve anything from God, and it's all generosity. Paul takes these examples of these Old Testament saints, and he shows us in these verses the ways that God was generous to them. And his argument is basically that unless you think that you're a lot, a lot more important than Abraham and David, that you're going to have to understand that God is dealing with you in the same way. So that's what Paul is doing. But we can still struggle to believe that, still struggle to hear that. And so what I'd like us to do this morning is we're going to take this text where Paul talks about the ways that God showed that generosity to Abraham and David, and we're going to spend some time time asking, what were the ways that God was generous to them? What were the gifts that, that these saints received, and what does it mean for us to receive those gifts too? Because we're going to struggle too as well. What does it mean for us to receive these gifts, and what are they? 
Well, Paul's first answer, the first gift that he highlights, is that we and Abraham and David receive forgiveness. We receive forgiveness. In verse 6, Paul's talking about King David. And here's the thing you, you need to remember this morning. I think maybe we still feel this way, but for the people reading this letter, right, especially the Jewish Christians reading this first book of Romans, when he talks about King David and Abraham, these are like superstars in their minds. These are, these are like Ben Franklin and Abraham Lincoln and Captain America all kind of like rolled up into one, right? That's, that's how they feel about these people that Paul's talking about. So Paul in verse 6 brings up David, and he says, okay, this awesome dude David, this, this Paul Bunyan, Ben Franklin, Gandhi to, together guy, right? This guy is blessed by God. But how does he understand his blessing? And then in verse 7, Paul starts quoting David from Psalm 32, where he's talking about his blessings from God. And David says this. He says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So David says, You know what it means to be blessed by God? It means to have your sins forgiven. It means that the evil things you've done, the Lord graciously chooses not to count those things against you. That is what I think blessing is, says King David. See, there's this thing that happens in Sunday school sometimes, in children's Bibles and even in grown-up Bibles and devotionals sometimes, in the way we read them, is that um, we take figures like David, And we take them as just sort of moral examples for ourselves, right? That we're supposed to just be like David. And in some ways that's problematic because we really shouldn't. (laughs) David, for example, does some pretty terrible things in his life. I don't know how familiar you are with those stories, but like the time that he knocks up one of his soldier's wives, and then the time that he murders that soldier to cover it up, um, the ways that he fails to trust the Lord, the ways that he has multiple wives and is such a lousy father that one of his sons stages a violent coup and thousands of people die. He made some significant mistakes, and in those ways we shouldn't be like him. But the, the real problem with that be like people is that it's true, but in a certain sense, that David does some things worthy of emulating, but what Paul is saying is that the greatest thing that David does worth emulating is as an example of someone who is forgiven by God, of someone who repents of his sin and asks God to cover it. This is David's example for us. If you go on in Psalm 32, this is what David says. He says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, And did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So, the first thing we learn about receiving the giftedness of the gospel is that it means receiving forgiveness, like David did, which is harder than it sounds. It's a lot harder, actually. Um, So, I used to be a manager at Target. A, um, a senior team leader. And as part of that job, one of the things that you would pretty regularly have to do, given some of the employees I had, is sit people down and chew them out for doing things wrong, right? And, and not just like wrong in the sense of like, you need to be a little more productive or work a little harder, but wrong like, no, you can't leave three hours before the end of your shift without telling anybody. You know, like, no, you can't like 
talk with your girlfriend on your cell phone while people are coming up to you and having questions while you're on the sales floor. Things like that, right? We would have those conversations. And the people, assuming that the, I wasn't about to fire them at the end of that conversation, would, would always be apologetic, right? They would, you know, they would always be like, I'm so sorry, and they'd give you these reasons or excuses, or I read my schedule wrong, or there was this thing going on, and they'd promise to never do it again, and they'd promise to work extra hard and, you know, pick up extra hours next time, do whatever they could to pay it back. They'd say all that, and what you're supposed to say, again, assuming that you're not going to just, is um, you're supposed to be like, okay, I understand, like, that's okay. Um, just do better next time. That's how you're supposed to respond. But some days I would be feeling kind of ornery, and I was thinking about this. Um, and so instead of that, what I would do is I would stop them as they were starting to give those explanations, and I would say, no, just stop. It's okay. I forgive you. And they hated that. <laughs> I mean, really, like, the, the amount of outrage people would display when instead of telling them, just do better next time, you said, I forgive you for doing that wrong thing was really remarkable to me. Because here's the thing. That's true for all of us, right? All of us can deal with mistakes that we make. All of us can even deal with failures. We can deal with being imperfect. We can do it with our pride intact, right? We say, okay, I'm going I'm to work harder next time. I'm going to try to pay it back. I'm going to try to make it right. We can do that, but what's hard for us to deal with is forgiveness. Because that means we've done something wrong that we can't repay and can't make up for and have to have it forgiven instead, and we hate that. I was talking a few years ago to a guy who had made some bad choices in his life, and I mean like... the the kind of really bad choices that, you know, end your marriage and wreck your family, right? And, um, and he said to me, he said, Pastor, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell me what I need to do to make it all right. What things do I need to do to make up for the things that I've done? And I had to tell him in that moment, you can't. You can't just make it all right, right? Not with the kinds of things that you've done. And he said, so what am I going to do then? And I said, you can't do anything. You've just got to let Jesus cover it and let yourself be forgiven. And there was this long pause. And then he said, that can't be right. Tell me what I need to do. That is the struggle that all of us have with forgiveness. Let me try to give you two words, maybe, to summarize that struggle. Two words. The first word is penance. The word penance. There's this idea that many of us have that what we should do in response to our sin is penance. We do this series of good deeds. We pay this series of debts. We, we give to some charities or we say our Hail Marys or we put our quarters in the cuss jar. Whatever it is that your tradition has you do, we do penance and that by doing those things we're somehow repaying the guilt of our sin. Penance is not what scripture calls us to. Because in a real sense, it's impossible. Sin's the kind of thing that you can't repay. Instead, what Scripture calls us to is repentance. Repentance. Repentance is not about repaying our sins. Instead, repentance is what we read a minute ago in Psalm 32. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I acknowledged my sin, didn't hide it, I confessed it, and then I was forgiven. And that's it. 
Now, we need to be careful here, all right? There's this tension I always feel when we talk about repentance. It's like, it's like you'll often hear pastors or um, Christian people describe repentance as turning around or doing a 180. Some of you guys have probably heard that kind of description. And that is sort of true. There's an important truth there, but it's also messy. It's true in the sense that repentance is not just something you do with your lips. It's not like when my kids say, I'm sorry, right? And it's obvious that they're not sorry. Repentance is something that you do from your heart. But God's forgiveness doesn't rest on your performance after you repent. So repentance means grieving sin, and it means turning away from sin, and even in a sense doing a 180. But even if with the next breath you fall back into that sin, you are forgiven. Repentance brings forgiveness. It's not a way for us to earn it through somehow reforming ourselves. So that's the first thing we're called to do, to receive forgiveness. We make that very practical. I know many of us labor under an enormous weight of guilt and shame because of things that we've done. We sin, and we feel this weight, and it seems like it never leaves. And those sins might have been terrible sins. But essential to being a Christian means that what we have to do is that we have to struggle and fight to receive forgiveness. That that we see a sin and we confess it and we repent. That is, you, you do have to do that, right? And maybe you even go repent and confess it to the person that you harmed. You do that, but then the sin is covered and it is forgiven. From that point onward, when the devil tries to bring it up again and condemn us with it, when our brains start replaying that conversation or that night or that choice over and over to leave us feeling guilty and ashamed, Our calling is to respond and say, no, that sin is forgiven. It's been paid for by Jesus, and I'm not guilty of it anymore. And that's hard, just like generosity is hard. (laughs) But that's the first part of what it means to receive the gift of Christianity. So that's one way that God is generous to us, by receiving forgiveness. But there's more to it than just that. We also receive righteousness in Christianity. Not just forgiveness, we also receive righteousness. So Paul starts discussing Abraham at the beginning of our passage. And really all of chapter 4 is this reflection on Abraham. But the key verse to chapter 4 is verse 3. Paul says, what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's a quotation of Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this is this argument that Paul is making that Abraham's justification rests only on faith. That's behind all of this. And we're going to come back to that. But notice what Abraham's faith gets him. He believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness, as right standing with God. That's how Paul in verse 6 talks about David too. He says, David says the same thing. When he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. The one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he spells that out in verses 4 and 5. He says, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. Meaning, if you work for something, right, they they owe you. They don't get to say, well, I'm just not going to give you your wages. But to the one who does not work but trusts God, 
who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. We are righteous because God chooses to credit our faith that way. And again, if you can't tell, the key word over and over there is righteous. Here's why that word matters. Here's the picture I think many of us have of the Christian life that I kind of default to. We start off, we think, as guilty. It's like we've got a bank account and the balance is like negative a million dollars, right? We owe this huge debt. And what we think is that in Jesus, God comes along and cancels the debt and kind of resets things to zero, that we aren't in the red anymore. And that now our job is to do good deeds and to start depositing money in the account and to kind of like, you know, edge things up into the, into the, the black, right? That's what we're supposed to do. That God moves us from guilty to neutral, and our job is to move from neutral toward righteous. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what these verses say. They don't say that God cancels our guilt because of our faith. They say that God credits our faith as righteousness. It's not that the bank account's like negative a million dollars and then it's zero. It's that, sure, you start at negative a million dollars, but that because of Jesus, suddenly it's like infinity or it's some, you know, outrageously huge number that you can't wrap your head around. That that's where you are because of the work of Christ. You can spend and spend because you have the righteousness of Jesus in that account and never run dry. Last week, Elizabeth and I were in Jamaica which I say not to rub it in, but it was our 10-year anniversary. Um, We spent six days there, and we spent that time at an inclusive resort, which we had never done before. And I don't know if you've ever stayed at one of those, but that means everything is free. So you'd sit down at a restaurant, and you'd look at the menu, and you'd be like, what do I want, you know, for an appetizer? And then you'd have this moment where you'd suddenly realize, like, I could order more than one appetizer. Like, I could order all of the appetizers and all of the desserts, which is why I'm on a diet now. But, um, right? I mean, it was so, like, it, it was hard to wrap your head around. We would get done eating, I remember, like, the first couple nights, and we would, like, stop and look at each other. Like, what do we do? Like, we're supposed to wait for a check, right? But, of course, it's not coming. We're, we can't, can we just get up and leave? You know, do we have to ask permission? It was so hard to get your head around. And the answer in all those situations, of course, is no, it's fine, right? You're a guest, You're entitled to everything here. You don't have to pay for anything. Often our attitude toward Christianity is that the gospel is what gets us in the door, but that once we're there, it's our hard work that we have to use to pay for stuff. Like Jesus gets you on the plane to Jamaica, and he gets you through customs, but from there on you're paying your own way. But that's not how it works in Scripture. In the gospel, the work of Jesus is It's (laughs) all-inclusive. Because of Jesus, we are righteous. We're entitled to all of the benefits and blessings of God. We don't have to pay for anything. So what does that mean in practice? Here's one example as I think about that. I think it means a lot, but it should affect the way we pray. So like when we pray, there's an appropriate humility that we should have, right? When we come before God, we recognize that he's greater than us and that we don't get to force him to do anything. But, but we also need to recognize that when we pray, we're not coming to God on our merit. We're not coming to him thinking that we somehow have to deserve the things that we're asking for. It's why we pray in Jesus' name. Because we aren't praying in ourselves, but we're praying in him and in the righteousness that he offers. Jesus is our representative. 
And that should change our attitude in prayer. Not that we presume on the fact that God has to give us stuff, right? Like, that's still wrong. But that we can come with a boldness. This is, this is how the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 4.16, describes prayer. He talks about how God is our, Jesus is our representative, our high priest before the Father, pleading our case. And then he says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's approach God's throne with confidence, not timidly, not feeling like we're unworthy, but with the confidence of knowing that when when your father looks at you, he's delighted in you because of the work of Christ. He sees you as righteous because of the work of Christ. He sees the worthiness of his son and treats each of us the same. So that means that we can pray boldly, that we can pray like Jesus prayed because we have his righteousness as we come before the Father. So in God's generosity, we receive forgiveness and we receive righteousness. There's one more thing Paul says that we also receive and that's that we receive belonging. We receive belonging. This is going to require us to go on a little trek through the end of the passage if you want to follow along. But So Abraham... Paul's talking about Abraham, and it's important. So he's the superstar, but he's especially important because he doesn't just represent himself when Paul's talking about it to these readers. Abraham is like the granddaddy of God's people, Israel. And so having Abraham as your father for the people that are reading this letter for the first time, that for Paul and for the other Israelites was like saying that I'm in God's family. I belong to God's people. I have this identity as a part of the people of God. And Paul's arguing that Abraham is the father of us all. He spells that out a little after our chapter in verse 16. He says, Therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. And here's how Paul gets to that point. Because he makes the argument for that idea that Abraham's the father of us all. He starts in verse 9. He says, is this blessedness, meaning this blessedness that Abraham has because of faith, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. I remember, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, circumcision within Paul's world is just kind of out, the sign that you're a part of God's people, this thing that you would do to show that you were a part of God's people. Um, And Paul says, so are these blessings that Abraham got only for people who are already inside, who've already gotten that sign? He says, well, remember, we said that Abraham is credited with righteousness because of faith. And then he asked the money question, so under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after Abraham was circumcised or before? And he gives the answer, which is, it's not after, but before. So Abraham in Genesis 15, he hasn't been given this sign, right, that these people care about. This outward sign that he's a part of God's people. Um, That happens 14 years later, but he's already... Back in Genesis 15, righteous before God. That he believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. So I know you're wondering what that has to do with us. Bear with me. We're we're, we're going through Paul's argument, right? So then in verse 11, he says, After he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was uncircumcised. So this is where he's saying that circumcision is a sign and a seal of this righteousness he had by faith. We're going to come back. I just want to take a a little aside about that, right? 
So that language of sign and seal is the language that we use of baptism and the Lord's Supper in our world. And, and that's because in our time after Jesus, like baptism is the thing that works the way circumcision did for, um, for Abraham. Colossians 2 actually ex- makes that explicit. Paul says, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So now in our age, baptism is the sign that we're a part of God's people, like circumcision. I point that out because one of the the things this text means is that, um, well, first it means sometimes in some places in our world, people talk about baptism like it's kind of magic, woo, and that it's somehow just because you've been baptized that you're a part of God's people. And This would be Paul saying, no, that's not how it works. That baptism is a sign and seal of the righteousness you have by faith. And the sign and seal don't mean anything if they're not, the thing that they're signifying isn't there. Um, This is also, this is a a real aside, but since sometimes people ask, this is also why we baptize our kids at Kish, actually. Because because circumcision is the sign and seal of the righteousness we have by faith, and Abraham gets it. And then God commands him to give it to his children. And since baptism is that sign in the new covenant, that that's why we receive it and give it to our children. Because we recognize that God is not dependent on the faith to make the sign and seal somehow magically work. That's neither here nor there for the... But some of you ask about that. Anyway, the point though is that circumcision is a sign and seal, but Abraham's righteousness comes by faith. And here's why that matters then. So then... Abraham is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he's then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Which is to say that Abraham's the father of those who have been circumcised as long as they also have faith in God. And he's the father of those who have faith and have not yet been circumcised, that we're all, Paul's arguing, a part of Abraham's family. And this is where we need to go back to what I said a few minutes ago. We're all a part of Abraham's family. And remember, in Paul's world, what that means. Because Abraham is the father of God's people. Right? Abraham's family is God's family. And so what Paul's ultimately arguing is that as we have faith, we are a part of of the family of God. That what we gain is a new identity as a part of God's people. Through God's grace, we receive this new identity. I think we lose sight of that sometimes. We tend to think of this, um, in our world, Christianity is such an individual thing, but just like, If you look around for a minute, right, this is, biblically speaking, your truest and deepest family. Like this, the the people of God, that is where we find our truest and deepest belonging if we are in Christ. That Abraham is our father, that Jesus is our savior, that we are God's people just as much as Paul's first readers would have been God's people. And, um... And I know that there are plenty of times that we fail to live up for that. I think there's this tension I feel when we say that. I say that, and I know 
that for some of us, we hear that and we, we kind of wrestle to believe it because the church often fails to live up to that reality. Often, we hold blood and selfish ambitions and other markers of identity as more meaningful than Jesus and being a part of the church. And it's... It's tempting for me to just kind of say, like, well, let's now say, well, we need to fix that, right? That our problem is that we don't do that enough. But here's the thing. Well, that's true. There are also a lot of times that we do live it out. And it's so easy, I think, for me and for us to focus on the ways that we fail to embody that reality, that we miss the fact that it really does happen. And when it happens, it's beautiful. There are two things as a pastor that I sometimes wish that I could show people, that you can't show people and you wish that you could show people. One of those things is how messed up everybody is, (laughs) which sounds funny, but I mean that kind of seriously. I feel like so often I have conversations with people where they feel like they're the only people with struggles or dark secrets, but as a pastor, you often get given the glimpses into struggles that different people have, and sometimes I wish I could say, like, Come, come and you're not the only one who's struggling, right? That lots of people have lots of hard things they're going through. But the other thing that I get glimpses of more than a lot of people is how beautiful people within the body can be to each other. That as much as there are hidden sins and struggles, there's also a lot of hidden acts of kindness and love. And those things also have to stay kind of hidden because, you know, because you're not going to toot your own horn and you're not going to show them off. But there are all kinds of ways that I get to see people serving other people and loving and supporting other people. And when you get to see that, you get these glimpses that I just wish that I could show you all of how beautiful God's family can be and how beautiful it could grow to be as we live more and more into that. So rather than bemoaning our failures... I guess my challenge this morning as I think about what it means to belong to that family that God has created, the challenge is just this. What, is, what are the ways that you and I can let the beauty of that family more move into our lives? What are the ways that we can do that? Because like we said, as much as there are hurts and pains that can keep us at a distance from each other, a lot of why I think we struggle to live out that identity as part of God's family It's because of our problem with generosity. Because of our problem with receiving things from others. Because it's hard to do that. It's hard to admit our need. It's hard to open ourselves up and be vulnerable. But if we belong to Jesus, then we belong to each other. And in each other, we have these rich gifts of grace. So reflect with me on that too, that what does it mean for us to live out that identity of belonging with each other? To show it to other people, yes, to show that love and forgiveness and help to others, but also to receive it from others and to allow ourselves to be open enough and present enough to be helped. That's what the gospel gets us, forgiveness and righteousness and belonging. And some other stuff, but that's plenty for this morning. Those are the gifts of grace, things that God gives us because of the work of Christ. So the final question that I just leave us with this morning, and the question that I grapple with a lot, is simply this. Because we so often struggle to take those kinds of gifts, what does it look like this week for us to accept those things? What are the ways that we are trying to do penance, to make amends for our sins, What are the ways guilt and shame seek to control us? 
And then how can we find those areas and apply the forgiveness that Jesus gives us to them? And what are the ways that we're timid in our faith? The ways we seek to do good works and perform because we think that we have to earn something from God because we're trying, we're trying to pay for something. How can we find those areas and speak to ourselves instead that in Christ we are righteous? What are the ways that we cut ourselves off from God and from his people? That we hide or judge rather than live out our identity of belonging? And then how can we in those areas apply the truth We are a part of God's family in the gospel. That, in many ways, that set of questions and process of growth is what it means to grow up into Jesus. It's understanding more and more what God has given us and the work that Jesus has done for us and then more and more receiving and applying those things to ourselves and to each other. Would you pray with me? Father, I give thanks for all the things that you give to us. I acknowledge, even as I speak those words, the disbelief in my heart that struggles to to accept it. Just pray that you would help me, a sinner, and all of us sinners, to receive the free grace you offer us in the gospel. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning we have the opportunity to come to the Lord.